Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And I have plenty of wonderful merch in my store, and the link is in my show notes. As well, if you're a fan of Canadian history, make sure you check out all of my shows, from John to Justin, Canadian History X, Canada, A Yearly Journey, and Pucks and Cups, along with Canada's Great War. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. Just click Donate. It helps keep this show going. Okay, on with the show. I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canada, A Yearly Journey. Now, there's a major event that happened this year that had long-lasting ramifications on Canadian history, the Northwest Resistance. But I'm not going to cover that in this episode, beyond saying that it happened this year. The reason for this is that it's such a huge event it deserves its own episode, and that's coming in the new year on my main history podcast, Canadian History X. Remember, that's E-H-X. So let's begin our look at the year 1885. On January 11th, Gordon Connaught was born in Ontario to a well-known family in the area. He would go on to attend the University of Toronto and would begin working as a lawyer in Ontario in 1912. In 1914, he was elected as a deputy reeve of Oshawa and then served as the reeve, or mayor, in 1916. This made him the youngest mayor in Oshawa history. Once he was done as mayor in 1917, he devoted himself to developing the hydroelectric power potential of Ontario. In 1937, he would be elected to the Ontario Legislature. In 1942, with the resignation of the Premier, he became Premier, but not leader of the party. And he would serve as Premier from October 21, 1942 to May 18, 1943. He would attempt to run for the leadership of the party, but collapsed hours before the leadership vote, and withdrew his candidacy. Art Ross was born on January 13, 1885 in Naughton, Ontario. One of ten children, nine sons and one daughter, his family moved around as his father worked for the Hudson's Bay Company. In 1886, they would settle at a trading post near Whitefish Lake in northern Ontario that was far from civilization, requiring the family to journey 370 kilometers twice a year for supplies. When Ross was seven, the family moved to Lake Saint-Jean, and three years later his mother left his father and moved back to Ontario with her younger children. 
She would marry Peter Mackenzie, the chief factor of the Hudson's Bay Company in the region, and they would settle in Montreal in 1896. It was in Montreal that Ross began to play more sports, becoming skilled in rugby, but especially hockey. By 1905, Ross was playing for the Montreal Westmount in the Canadian Amateur Hockey League, the top league in the country. In 1904-05, his last season with the team, he played eight games and scored ten goals, creating the image of a rushing defenseman. In 1907, the Kenora Thistles, a team I covered on my other show, Pucks and Cups, wanted to win the Stanley Cup and defeat the juggernaut Montreal Wanderers. Ross, being one of the top players of his day, was offered $1,000 to play two games. He would accept it, as it was the equivalent of being paid $30,000 today. It paid off not only in terms of money for Ross, but professionally too, as he won his first Stanley Cup with the team that year. But despite his high pay, he would have no points in those two games. By 1909, Ross was being paid $1,200 by the Wanderers, double the average salary for a hockey player at the time. Before the 1913-14 season, Ross refused to sign with the Wanderers, asking for a salary increase. The Wanderers agreed to his request for $1,500 to play for the team, and he had 9 points in 18 games. When the Wanderers, Canadians, Quebec Bulldogs, Senators, and Toronto Arenas joined the new NHL, Ross became the coach of the Wanderers and played in the first NHL game ever on December 19, 1917. He would earn the first penalty in NHL history. On January 2, 1918, the Wanderers Arena burned to the ground and the team folded after only four games. With the team gone, Ross retired as a player and began a decades-long managerial career. In his hockey career, he had his greatest success with the NHA, where he had 72 points, including 56 goals in 131 games. In 1924, when a Boston team was admitted to the NHL, Charles Adams hired Ross as his vice president, general manager, coach and scout. Adams asked Ross to come up with a nickname that portrayed a cunning, agile and fast animal. Ross decided to name the team the Boston Bruins. In 1929, the team won the Stanley Cup and in the 1929-30 season, Ross guided the team to 38 wins in 44 games, a record at the time. The 875 winning percentage of his team continues to be a record. From December 3, 1929 to January 9, 1930, the team won every game, the longest streak in NHL history until 1982. In 1934, Ross stepped aside as coach to focus on managing the team and hired his old friend, Frank Patrick, with an annual salary of $10,150 to coach the team. Unfortunately, off-ice issues and a poor winning record meant that Ross relieved Patrick of his duties after the 1936 playoffs and once again coached. That year, Ross signed Bobby Bauer, Woody Dumas, and Milt Schmidt, all three Hall of Famers, who formed the legendary Kraut line. In 1937-38, this team would win another Stanley Cup. In 1947, Ross's two sons donated the Art Ross Trophy, which is now awarded to the leading scorer in the regular season. In 1949, Ross was named to the Hockey Hall of Fame. And on August 5, 1964, Ross died at a nursing home in Boston at the age of 79. On February 4th, Corrine Wilson would be born in Montreal. She would move with her family to Ottawa in 1918 and begin doing an immense amount of volunteer work for the underprivileged and also running organizations to influence women to get into politics. She would serve as the president of the National Federation of Liberal Women of Canada from 1938 to 1948. 
1930, at the age of 45, she would be appointed the first female senator in the history of Canada, only four months after the person's case, something I talked about on my podcast, Canadian History X. In 1949, she would become Canada's first female delegate to the United Nations General Assembly and was the chair of the Canadian National Committee on Refugees and the first woman to chair a Senate Standing Committee. She would be given the Legion of Honour by France in 1950. In 1955, she became the first woman Deputy Speaker of the Canadian Senate, and she would die suddenly on March 3, 1962. Today, a school is named for her in Orleans, Ontario. On April 8, Susanna Moody would pass away at the age of 81. She had been born in 1803 in England and wrote her first children's book in 1822. In 1832, she immigrated to Canada with her husband and children and would continue to write about her life in Canada. In 1852, she published Roughing It in the Bush, detailing her experiences on a Canadian farm in the 1830s. This book would become her greatest and most successful work. On June 27th, Arthur Lismer would be born in England. He would come to Canada in 1911 and settle in Toronto where he became an official wartime painter, painting many of the ships that came into Halifax Harbour, and also doing sketches of the damage after the Halifax explosion. He was an original member of the Group of Seven, and would eventually become a member of the Canadian Group of Painters. In 1967, he was awarded the Order of Canada, and he would pass away in Montreal in 1969. In 1885, the Royal Commission created to look at Chinese immigration would submit its final report, concluding that there was little evidence to support claims against Chinese immigration. The commissioners stated that the Chinese were judged on an unfair standard, even with the lack of evidence of any threat to Chinese immigration, the report still recommended moderate legislation against immigration. Only a small minority felt that no legislation was needed. Instead of pushing for an outright ban on Chinese immigration, the commission stated that a head tax was the best option. On July 20th, the Chinese Immigration Act of 1885 would be passed. This act would put a $50 head tax on Chinese immigrants, with the exceptions being diplomats, tourists, merchants, men of science, and students. This act was brought in because of a wave of Chinese immigration into Canada, and within the act it is stated plainly, an act to restrict and regulate Chinese immigration into Canada. This was the first piece of legislation in Canadian history to exclude immigration on the basis of ethnic origin. Under the new law, vessels coming into Canada from China could only transport one Chinese immigrant per 50 tons of ship weight. Essentially, a 300-ton ship could carry six Chinese immigrants. In 1887, the law would be changed to allow Chinese women married to non-Chinese men to enter Canada. But things would not improve in the 20th century. In 1900, the tax was increased to $100, and in 1903, it was raised to $500. In 1923, the act was superseded by the Chinese Immigration Act, which banned Chinese immigration into Canada. This act would be repealed in 1947. On June 22, 2006, Stephen Harper apologized in the House of Commons for the Chinese head tax. Mr. Speaker, I rise today to formally turn the page on an unfortunate period in Canada's past. A period during which a group of people People who only sought to build a better life were repeatedly and deliberately singled out for unjust treatment. I speak, of course, of the head tax that was imposed on Chinese immigrants to this country, as well as the other restrictive measures that follow. Le Canada que nous connaissons aujourd'hui ne sera pas ce qu'il est 
dans les efforts des travailleuses et des travailleurs chinois qui ont commencé à arriver au milieu du 19e siècle. Almost exclusively young men, these Chinese immigrants made the difficult decision to leave their families behind in order to pursue opportunities in a country halfway around the world they called Gold Mountain. Beginning in 1881, over 15,000 of these Chinese pioneers became involved in the most important nation-building enterprise in Canadian history, the construction of the Canadian Pacific Railway. From the shores of the St. Lawrence across the seemingly endless expanses of shield and prairie, climbing the majestic Rockies and cutting through the rugged terrain of British Columbia, this transcontinental link was the ribbon of steel that bound our fledgling country together. It was an engineering feat that was instrumental to the settlement of the West and the subsequent development of the Canadian economy, and one for which the backbreaking toil of Chinese laborers was largely responsible. The conditions under which these men worked were at best harsh and at times impossible. Tragically, some 1,000 Chinese laborers died during the building of the CPR. But in spite of it all, these Chinese immigrants persevered and in doing so helped to ensure the future of this country. But from the moment the railway was completed, Canada turned its back on these men. Beginning with the Chinese Immigration Act of 1885, a head tax of $50 was imposed on Chinese newcomers in an attempt to deter immigration. Not content with the tax's effect, the government subsequently raised the amount to $100 in 1900 and then to $500 in 1903, the equivalent of two years' wages. We acknowledge the high cost of the head tax meant that many, many family members were left behind in China, never to be reunited, or that families lived apart and, in, in some cases, in extreme poverty. On July 23rd, Isaac Killam is born in Nova Scotia. He would eventually start working for the Union Bank of Halifax and gain full control of the company in 1919. He would be involved in several projects and businesses, including the Mercy Paper Company, and he would become the richest man in Canada during his life. He would also buy the Mail and Empire in 1927 and sell it in 1936 when it became the Globe and Mail. With no children, he and his wife devoted themselves to using their wealth to promote higher education in Canada. They would create the Killam Trust as part of this. This endowment today is worth $400 million and is used for artistic ventures and scientific research in Canada. Dalhousie University would receive $30 million from the couple, or $215 million today. He also established the Isaac Walton Killam Hospital for Children and his inheritance taxes went to create the Canadian Council for the Arts following his death in 1955. On September 15th, the Northwest Territories would hold an election, the first major election in the history of the territory. This election would elect 11 people to the Council of the Northwest Territories. In 1888, the first Northwest Territories general election would be held. Also this year, Montreal would be hit hard by the smallpox epidemic. In order to deal with the disease, municipal authorities decided to make vaccination a requirement, but at the time, medical opinion was heavily divided on the effectiveness of vaccines. The population, for its part, generally refused to get vaccinated, and many felt it was just a way to spread the disease further. Things would reach a critical point when, on September 18, 1885, residents rioted and tore down pro-vaccination posters and destroyed the home of the official medical vaccinator, while also attacking pharmacies and city hall. 
This outburst did not stop the spread of the disease, of course, and by the end of the smallpox epidemic, 3,164 people in Montreal had died, with three-quarters of them being children. With this number, Montrealers began to accept that vaccinations were a good idea, aided by the prompting of authorities and clergy within the city. This would be the last major epidemic of smallpox in a North American city. And while Quebec saw 5,964 deaths, Ontario only had 30. On October 23rd, Lauren Harris was born in Brantford, Ontario, and would become a member of the Group of Seven. Many consider him to be the stimulus behind the creation of the organization. He would make several trips out to the Rocky Mountains with A.Y. Jackson to sketch the landscape. He would pass away in 1970, and a South Shore Baffin Island painting would sell for $240,000 in 1981, a record at the time for a Canadian painting. That painting was then sold in 2001 for another record, $2.2 million. For a good many years, Lauren Harris has continued to live in Vancouver, where he has continued to paint and to play an active part in the artistic life of the country. Recently in the Vancouver Art Gallery, he talked with Percy Saltzman. Mr. Harris, when did you first become interested in art? Uh, about the year two. What brought it about? I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, I don't remember back that far. I was eight years old or seven, one or the other. Can't recall the actual fact that precipitated you. Oh, yes, I can remember. I um, did Christmas cards in watercolors on the floor in the living room. And what were the results like? Have you ever seen them? Not since, <laughs> which is fortunate. <laughs> then somebody must have encouraged you. Who kept you at it? Uh, a little aunt. And we called her auntie. She weighed 75 pounds, never more. And she worked with me. Had you any other interests to uh, divert your attention from her? Oh, a good many. Yeah. Not since, <laughs> which is fortunate. <laughs> On November 7th, the last spike would be driven in for the Canadian Pacific Railway at Craigalachie, British Columbia. The spike was driven into the ground at 9.22 a.m. by Sir Donald Smith, who helped finance the railway. As the big day approached, which came four years behind schedule of the initial timeline, but six years ahead of schedule for the revised Canadian Pacific Railway timeline, two crews coming from the east and west converged at the Eagle Pass at Craigalachie. The CPR wanted to have some sort of celebration, but by this point it was nearly bankrupt. The directors had borrowed immense amounts of money to get the job done, and there was no chance for a grand spectacle to end the construction with a flourish. Instead, only a modest celebration for one of the greatest engineering projects in Canadian history would occur. There would be no reporters at the event, nor any politicians, including Prime Minister Sir John A. Macdonald. Even company president George Stephen was away in England and could not attend. So it fell to Donald Smith, the main director and financier of the project, and general manager William Van Horn to journey out to Eagle Pass. They would be joined by surveyor Sanford Fleming, Major Albert Bowman Rogers, who had directed the CPR to go through the Rogers Pass, and several other officials. On November 6th, the workers had finished the construction of the railroad, just in time for the officials to ceremoniously finish it with the camera. There is no community there at this point, but Van Horn would name the spot Craigalachie, in honour of a clan grant gathering place in Scotland, where he and George Stephen grew up near. There would also be no gold spike, as was often used in this type of ceremony. Van Horn had asked for a gold spike from the CPR, but received the reply of, 
The last spike will be just as good an iron one as there is between Montreal and Vancouver, and anyone who wants to see it driven will have to pay full fare. A silver spike had been made for the Governor General, the Marquis of Lansdowne, who was supposed to be at the ceremony, but poor weather forced his return to Ottawa with the spike. The silver spike would actually remain with the Van Horn family until 2012 when it was donated to the Canadian Museum of Civilization. At the ceremony, Van Horn would say a few words, stating, All I can say is that the work has been done very well in every way. Later that day, he would telegram Prime Minister Sir Johnny Macdonald, stating, Thanks to your far-seeing policy and unwavering support, the Canadian Pacific Railway is complete. The last rail was laid this morning at 9.22. As for the photograph, it was taken by Alexander J. Ross, who was noted for his portraits of the Indigenous people between 1884 and 1891. Ross happened to be at the site, and he was pushed into service to take the photo after Cornelius Sewell, the expected photographer, did not arrive. This allowed Ross to take one of the most famous photos in Canadian history. The CPR would make many reproductions of the photo and sell them. On December 5th, Ernest Cormier would be born in Montreal, and he would go on to become one of Canada's greatest architects, and he would design the Supreme Court of Canada building in Ottawa. In 1974, he was awarded the Order of Canada, and he would pass away in 1980. In 2018, he was named a National Historic Person. Francis Alexis Patrick was born in Ottawa on December 21, 1885, where his father, Joseph Patrick, was a wealthy lumber baron in the city. As a teenager, the family moved to Montreal. In 1903-04, Patrick played for the Montreal Victorias, recording five points in five games. In 1909-10, Patrick joined his brother Lester on the Red Fruit Creamery Kings in the NHA. By this point, Patrick was one of the top hockey players in the country and was known for his skilled defensive abilities. To play for the Kings, he was paid $2,000, amounting to nearly $60,000 today. And after their brief time with the Kings, the two brothers would found the Pacific Coast Hockey League with their father, Joseph. It would be Joseph that would come up with the idea of having numbers on the sweaters of players. The brothers would also build the first major sporting venue in Vancouver, the 10,000-seat Denman Arena. This was the largest arena in Canada at the time, and the first to introduce artificial ice. That arena would last until 1936, when it burned to the ground. With the league created, Patrick would play for, coach, and manage the Vancouver Millionaires, a team he created. His time with the team would also include playing for the team from 1911 to 1918, and coaching and managing the team until 1918-19. Then again from 1924 to 1926, when the team was called the Maroons. In the team's first season, it finished with a record of 7 wins and 8 losses, and did not make the playoffs. In 1914-15, the Vancouver Millionaires finally broke through. Patrick would have 20 points in 16 games, leading his team to compete for the Stanley Cup, which they won with Patrick scoring 3 points in 3 games. While playing, coaching, and managing the team, Patrick was also the president of the Pacific Coast Hockey Association. As president, he would bring in several innovations into hockey that would later be adopted by the NHL. These included the creation of the blue line, the penalty shot, the boarding penalty, and even raising the stick when a goal is scored. He and his brother also allowed goaltenders to fall to the ice to make a save, and for the puck to be kicked anywhere but in the net. In all, Frank has been credited with 22 changes that remain in the NHL rulebook to this day. In 1950, Patrick was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. On June 29, 1960, exactly four weeks after his brother died of a heart attack, Patrick died of a heart attack. Before he died, he said, I am not afraid of death. It would be the opening moment of the best story a fellow ever read or a writer ever wrote.
On December 24th, A.A. Heaps was born in England and would find his way to Canada and Winnipeg in 1911. He would become one of the leaders of the Winnipeg General Strike, which I did an episode on back in 2020, and he would then serve on Winnipeg City Council from 1917 to 1925. In 1925, he was elected to Parliament and was instrumental in bringing in Canada's first old-age pension. A founding member of the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, the forerunner of the NDP, he would serve until 1940, and he would pass away on April 4, 1954. Also this year, Canada would outlaw the potlatch ceremony among the Indigenous people of the Northwest Coast. The law was often ignored by the Indigenous people, but it would remain in place until 1951. Also related to the Indigenous people, it was this year that the Electoral Franchise Act was passed. This gave the right to vote to the Indigenous men who lived on reserves as they owned land and had $150 worth of improvements on property. This was extended only to Indigenous people in the East, not the West and the Canadian prairies in British Columbia. And during the debate over the Act, it was suggested that unmarried women get the vote, but this was put down quickly in Parliament. Banff National Park would be established this year, the first national park in Canada, and today one of the biggest tourist spots in the country. And lastly, this year, Pauline Johnson published her iconic poem that would spark her career, A Cry from an Indian Wife. The setting of the poem was the Battle of Cutknife during the Northwest Resistance, and it was published in The Week by Charles G.D. Roberts. Roberts was a noted poet in his own right and a soon-to-be lifelong friend for Pauline. Pauline's poem centers on an indigenous woman whose husband has gone to fight the Canadian forces, attacking the hill. I did an entire episode on Pauline Johnson just a few weeks ago on Canadian History X, so be sure to check it out. In the poem, she writes, Who prays for the victory of the Indian scout? Who prays for our poor nation lying low? None. Therefore take your tomahawk and go. My heart may break and burn into its core, but I am strong to bid you to go to war. I'm Craig Baird, and that was Canada, A Yearly Journey. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories, and there are so many for you to sink your teeth into. If you enjoy this podcast, then please check out my other podcasts, From John to Justin, Canada, A Yearly Journey, Pucks and Cups, and Canada's Great War. We love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those in my show notes.